It's cooler today. A new dawn has broken this morning. I wanted to bring to you today a very reflective podcast. Welcome to Keep Calm and Cauliflower Cheese. Keep calm and carry on was the mantra through World War II, where the Queen was learning to become the next monarch from her father, her dear father, King George VI, who unexpectedly became the king on the abdication of his brother, Edward, to marry Wallace Simpson. It was a surprise. The Queen, or who was to become the Queen, Elizabeth, wasn't thought to be next in line to the throne. But things changed. And she was trained accordingly by her father's wishes. When he saw her off, when she was on her first official trip to Africa, still as the princess, she, he didn't expect at that time that a few weeks later that she would become queen. That was the last time she saw her father. Her father died at Sandringham on a February morning. And it took hours to get hold of her. She was in the midst of the African jungle before phones, internet, and all of the modern technologies we have today. And from that moment, she became queen and had the sense of duty to carry on the reins that her father had passed to her. And ever since that day, in 1952, she had shown tremendous sense of duty and courageousness through difficult times, through changing times, changing attitudes, and right up until the end, on a dreary, dreek, autumnal day, in Scotland at Balmoral, she finally passed her last breath. And it's with great sadness to bring a different type of podcast to you today. A reflective podcast, but with a hint of the humour that she had, with the mischievousness, with the cheekiness that she had, that everybody who met her and talked to her has expressed. And that's what I'm hoping to do over these series of podcasts over the next couple of weeks. Just give a reflection and respect to the Queen's reign, but also the sense of Britishness, stoicness and humour that she gave to us all. Queen Elizabeth came to the throne at the age of 25 and passed away at the age of 96, Britain's longest reigning and serving monarch, who has given steadfast and admirable advice to 15 prime ministers and 12 US presidents. She's a sort of person that could put people at ease, but even the most masculine and egotistical of some of these leaders were humbled in her presence. And that's the power, the duty, and the uniqueness of Queen Elizabeth.
It was Boris Johnson has named Elizabeth the Great, the passing of the second Elizabethan age. The first steadfast, raven-haired, Amada-defeating queen. But this reign with Elizabeth II has been even more significant in many ways. But living in America for such a long time, the amount of people who've asked me about the queen and what I thought of the queen, if I knew the queen, if I've met the queen, all of the above. And it's great proudness that I have of being British in these times when such a well-respected leaguer was talked about throughout the whole world. And it was a thread, like a vein running across the Atlantic that I truly felt proud and humbled to be British and gave me the the sense of home and the spirit of being British whilst being thousands of miles away. She was a stable, reassuring figure through the last 45 years of my life and 70 years of friends, families, lives as well. And it was very, very important to have this staple rock, this foundation of British society that could help us in times of trouble and strife and get us through the darkest days and make us shine again. She was always the still calm center, the stability and reassurance, the calm center of the eye of the storm that sometimes encircled round her and through her the years of her reign. Always a constant, one of my favorite words when remarking or thinking about her. Constant sometimes is seen as boring, routine, mundane. But it's not that, there's more to it than that. It's a reassurance, it's a foothold through history to take us from one era, one generation to the next. And it's that stability, that constantness, that steadfastness, the dependable nature of the queen and how dutiful she was that really has impressed me over the years of reading about her, seeing her almost every day. As Boris Johnson said in his speech today, she's the most common person a lot of people dream about. She's always on our screens and always has been on our screens through the years. But what a week in life in the UK and Britain and throughout the world. We had a change of the head of state on Tuesday from one prime minister, her 14th Boris Johnson, to her 15th and Liz Truss. And she continued her duties to the end, her hands bruised from holding up an entire nation over the years. But she kept going right up until the end and continued her duties when she was in feeling uncomfortable and 
obviously in pain as well. But the crown passes invisibly on the death of one monarch to the next. And this sort of reassurance, this transition is very, very reassuring in itself. She was the best of British, the very spirit of Great Britain, dignity and spirit. And she carried out, as I said, her duties till the end. And upon this transition, the plan after her death, her fingerprints, the Queen's fingerprints are all over this transition, making a very, very smooth transition to becoming monarch for her son, King Charles. The Queen's deadpan humour was the hallmark of a monarch who could put people at ease. So shortly before her 88th birthday at an otherwise routine reception at Buckingham Palace, the Queen broke into song as she was chatting with the soprano Laura Wright. She blurted out a snippet of Sing, the song composed by Gary Barlow for her Diamond Jubilee. The news spread over Twitter, not least because it contradicted the Queen's image of sombre propriety. But those who knew her best would have recalled that the Queen often entertained them by singing medleys of show tunes and her sister Margaret at the piano or belted out songs while perched on a wooden box during a picnic in the Outer Hebrides. The longest serving monarch in British history was imbued with an unwavering sense of duty. Winston Churchill, her first prime minister, told his daughter Mary Soames he was impressed that she was always paid attention to whatever she was doing and through her training gave her an understanding of the world and the role she would play in it. But the private queen Lilibet to her family was more notable for her spontaneity. She had a great sense of humour, a gift of mimicry, sharp opinions, physical courage and kind and generous spirit. From time to time we caught flashes of her mischievous streak, notably when a television audience of 900 million watched to do a surprise turn alongside James Bond, Daniel Craig's incarnation during the 2012 Olympics opening ceremony. Or most took a moment to believe it was actually her Majesty being escorted to a helicopter before seeming to parachute into the Olympic Stadium. Those who knew her closely would not have been surprised. It is said that she, in fact, insisted on playing herself after Danny Boyle, the director, first suggested Dame Heron Mirren. In most official engagements, however, the Queen traditionally dowered demeanor masked this mischievous side to preserve the dignity of her role. It was an instinct honed in childhood by a formidable paternal grandmother, Queen Mary, who felt it inappropriate for a monarch to smile in public. If the monarch was required to be serious and dutiful, Queen Elizabeth also required herself to be prepared. On the eve of the 40th year on the throne in 1992, I have a feeling that in the end, probably training is the answer to many great things. You can do a lot if you're properly trained, and I hope I have been. All of her prime ministers recognised how well prepared she was. Harold Wilson, the Labour prime minister, felt like an unprepared schoolboy after his first meeting with her. When he failed to answer her probing questions, he came to regard her as highly intelligent raconteur over the political scene. Luminaries who met her in confidential audiences, government officials, senior military officers, clergymen, diplomats and judges, learnt that because she stayed above politics, she could absorb information without a filter of ideology and they relied on her to tell her what people really cared about. This is a great sense of irony because it was assumed that the lofty perch of the monarchy made it impossible to understand the everyday concerns of commoners. In fact, over the decades of service, the Queen met thousands of people a year, never once seeming impatient or bored. How she achieves this will remain a great part of her mystique. 
One gets crafty after a while and learns how to save oneself, she cryptically remarked to Jacqueline Kennedy during the First Lady's visit to Buckingham Palace. Years later, one of the Queen's relatives asked her what she meant. I have a knack. As soon as I stop working, I just get into the car and switch off. The ability to compartmentalise developed at an early age when she would imagine herself as a pony. When somebody called her, she didn't answer right away. Record her cousin Lady Mary Clayton. She would then say, I couldn't answer you as a pony. During a state visit to Washington in 1991, Benedict Valentier, who oversaw the president's guest quarters, watched her standing alone before half a dozen engagements. At this, she was looking inward, getting set, Valentier said. This is how she wound up her battery. There was no chit-chat, but standing absolutely still and waiting, resting in herself. And before formal dinners, the Queen sometimes relaxed through her private secretary. Sir Philip Moore called this her tiara time. She had a kit with tools that she would use to decorate diamond tiaras by hooking up on a pearl or gemstone drops. She used also her sharpener, two parts debonair and one part gin with a cube of ice and lemon slice she enjoyed before lunch most days. Queen Elizabeth's training owed less to a standard educational curriculum than the influence of figures in her formative years. Her mother promoted discipline by encouraging her to record her impressions in a diary each night. It became a lifelong habit, like scrubbing your teeth, the Queen said. It's not really a diary like Queen Victoria's, you know, or as detailed as that. It's quite small. To overcome her shyness, her mother arranged role-playing exercises in which she would pretend to be the Archbishop of Canterbury or another distinguished figure. She impressed on a maxim, if you find somebody or somebody a bore, the fault lies in you, and demonstrated how to walk at a measured pace, as well as sit in a slight distance from the chair's back for hours, because the lady's back should never touch to the back of the chair. Elizabeth perfected a sturdy stance that she described to Susan Crossland, the wife of Anthony Crossland, the foreign secretary, by hitching her evening gown above her ankles and saying, always keep them parallel. Make sure your weight is evenly distributed. That's all there is to it. Her mother instilled a deeply held Christian faith, reading her Bible stories and drilling her on collects and psalms from the book of prayer. This played a vital role in how the Queen carried out her duties and coped with the ups and downs of personal life. She can take anything the world throws at her, said Lord Carey of Clifton, the former Archbishop of Canterbury. The governess taught Elizabeth the academic basics, which included an early appetite for current news events by reading the children's newspaper. Queen Mary injected rigour into the curriculum with the wonderful memory training of learning poetry by heart. For an early Elizabeth was obliging, eager to do her best and happiest when she was busy. Elizabeth's education intensified when her father took the throne and she studied the intricacies of the British Constitution by Sir Henry Martin, painstakingly underlining and annotating a three-volume work of constitutional scholar Sir William Anson. Martin also taught her to appraise both sides of the question, thus using her own judgment. Elizabeth's father had a singular place in her upbringing. Only he could tell her what it was like to be a monarch, what the challenges were and how best to meet them. She was brighter than George VI, who laboured to commit facts and figures to memory. She never misses a point, the writer Kenneth Rose says. You say something and you see the point has gone home before you even finish the sentence. She watched with admiration her father struggle to overcome his stammer in his public speeches and she noticed his diligence in jotting down ideas on a pad during meals, his steadfastness, she later said, had been her model. During long walks at Sandringham, Balmoral and Windsor, 
he gave her advice and shared his views on government and politics. She watched him reading his daily dispatch boxes, a habit she followed through her reign, except on Christmas and Easter. She even read them on weekends when she stayed at Friends during one of the Queen's visits. After she had a desk bound for the entire Saturday morning, one of her close friends, Must you, ma'am? In which the Queen replied, I'm afraid if I missed once, I would never catch up again. It is not ma'am, it's ma'am. Rhymed to a jam. Behind the doggedness lay the light-hearted spirit. On her desk at Windsor Castle, she kept one of the Solar Queen statuettes popularised by the, her Diamond Jubilee. It drives me mad, she told her cousin Lady Elizabeth Anson with a laugh. The sun comes out and it goes click, click, click. I see myself waving to me. Her deadpan humour sometimes took a moment to register. In 2003, the Countess Airely, her lady-in-waiting, celebrated the 70th at Annabelle's in London, where the Queen was seated next to Robert Gascoigne Cecil, the 7th Marquess of Salisbury. The next day, the Queen had an engagement at the St Albans Cathedral, and she was being introduced to the dignitaries by the Dean of St Albans. He spotted Lord Salisbury and asked whether she knew him. Oh yes, she said. Rob and I were in the nightclub last night till half past one. World leaders instantly relaxed in her presence. President Reagan and his wife Nancy arrived for breakfast on a terrace outside the Queen's bedroom at Windsor in 1982 to find American-style informality. Lined up on the table were boxes of cereal, recalled Nancy Reagan. I said to Prince Charles, what do, you, what do I do? Just help yourself, he said. Afterwards, the Queen and Reagan took their famous ride together through the home park. At one point, Reagan was waving to much to onlookers that she was worried that he might ride straight into the aisle next to the Thames. Reagan described her as charming and observed she was in charge of that animal. She got engagingly down to earth. Her favourite activity during shooting parties was picking up the pheasants or grouse after they'd been brought down. While at a friend's shoot on a friend's estate, a wounded cock pheasant flew into the hedge straight at her, flapping and clawing and knocked her down. There was blood on her clothing from the bird and a detective standing nearby feared she'd been shot. He threw herself on top of her and began giving a mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. I consider we got to know each other rather well, she said and hide the man for a protection force. In even more sedate settings, she could surprise. At a dinner given to John Wills, one of the guests watched as she opened up a handbag to remove a white suction cup and discreetly spit into it. The Queen then attached the cup to the underside of the table. The cup had a hook on it, and she attached her handbag to it. On another occasion, she invited American artist Frolic Weymouth to lunch in her private dining room at Windsor. To her amazement, not only did the Queen insist on serving him from the sideboard, she cleared the table, she stacked the plates, which we were never taught to do when we were growing up. The Queen was always attentive to her overnight guests at the palaces. At Balmoral, she would show them to their rooms where she selected books to their liking. Baroness Wilson of Rivler, the widow of Howard Wilson, fondly recalled that she put von vast donations in my room. She gave a lot of thought to the books and things that I would like. The Queen's physical courage was equally an unappreciated trait. While inspecting her yearlings at a field near the stable at Polkhampton in Berkshire, the six colts began galloping, rearing up and kicking out. Only the queen and her trainer in boarding stayed in place while their companions bolted. She knew that if she remained motionless, the horse would settle down. She was completely unruffled, boarding said. At the age of 55, she displayed that sang to her subjects. 
in June the 13th, 18, 1981, dressed in the scarlet tunic of the Welsh Guards and her navy blue riding skirt, she was leading her annual birthday parade up the mall, riding side saddle on Burmese, her 19-year-old mare. As she turned towards the Horse Guards parade for the start of the Trooping of the Colours, six shots rang out from the crowd. Her startled horse cantered forward, and she instinctively pulled the reins with both hands. Amid the pandemonium, she focused on calming Burmese, leaning down to pat the horse's neck, proceeding serenely at the walk. Though the shots were blanks, the Queen later revealed that in a split-second glance, she had seen the man in the crown pointing the gun and could not believe her eyes. Perhaps the most unlikely quality was her humility. At a party at St. James's Palace given by one of her cousins shortly before the wedding of Prince William Kate Middleton, the Queen had made, made her way happily on her own without any attendance making introductions. It was her palace, yet she was merely another guest. She could uphold the identity of herself as a Queen and still be humble, Margaret Rhodes said. Her inner modesty stops her from getting spoiled. There was plenty of pomp and protocol for formal occasions, but in private, when she would sidle into a room, as a private secretary put it, or slip into the background when somebody else was being celebrated, her unaffected humility gave the Queen a special grandeur. I just want to recount some of the words Boris Johnson uh, put on Twitter and across the internet yesterday. He was the 14th Prime Minister and they were beautifully written. This is our country's saddest day. In the hearts of every one of us, there is an ache at the passing of our queen, a deep personal sense of loss, far more intense perhaps than we expected. In these first grim moments since the news, I know that millions and millions of people have been pausing whatever they've been doing to think about Queen Elizabeth, about the bright and shining light that has finally gone out. She seemed so timeless and so wonderful that I'm afraid... We had come to believe, like children, that she would just go on and on. Wave after wave of grief is rolling across the world from Balmoral, where our thoughts are with the royal family, and breaking far beyond this country and throughout the great commonwealth of nations that she so cherished and which cherished her in return. As is so natural with human beings, it's only when we face the reality of our loss that we truly understand what is gone. It is only really now that we grasp how much she meant for us how much she did for us, how much she loved us. As we think of the void she leaves, we understand the vital role she played selflessly and calmly embodying the continuity and unity across our country. We think of her deep wisdom and historical understanding, her seemingly inexhaustible but understated sense of duty. Relentless for her diary must have felt, she never once let it show to the tens of thousands of events, great and small, she brought her smile and her warmth and her gentle humour, and for unrivaled 70 years she spread the magic around her kingdom. This is our country's saddest day because she had a unique and simple power to make us happy. That is why we loved her. That is why we grieve for Elizabeth the Great, the longest serving and in many ways the finest monarch in our history. It is one of the best achievements that she not only modernised the constitutional monarchy, but produced an heir to the throne who will amply do justice to her legacy, and those own sense of duty as best traditions of her mother and his country. Through our voices may still be choked with sadness. We can say with confidence the words not heard in this country for more than seven decades. God save the King. Former British Prime Minister Theresa May, the Queen's 13th Prime Minister, was recounting in the House of Commons today how she was at a dinner party 
with the queen in attendance. And there's all the delicious foods and feasting on all the different tables. And she decided to walk over and put some items on a plate. She put a single piece of cheese and other items. As she's walking back to her seat, the cheese toppled. And in slow motion, hit the floor. Theresa May was at that point flabbergasted, not knowing what to do. And in the urgent sense of the moment, leant down and picked up the piece of cheese, put it back on the plate and took the plate back to the table where she propped it on the side of the table. And thinking that she got away with it, she looked up and realised Her Majesty the Queen had watched her single every move. From the moment she put the items on the plate to the cheese tumbling onto the floor, her picking it up and placing it back on the table. The Queen just smiled. There's going to be a different Keep Calm and Cauliflower cheese over the next couple of weeks. And you'll definitely have to stay posted um, because I'll be posting new editions of the podcast when I feel and seem that it's appropriate to post new editions of the podcast. I have a love of history. I have a great love of my country. So I'm going to try to reflect that you know, from the research I'm doing and the thoughts that I have over the coming weeks. Because I think the conversation, the memory, is sometimes very, very important. Warm memories and the history and traditions and thinking about the past and the times that we spent together can have a restorative effect and make one feel better. So that's what I'm going to try to do on the editions of the podcast coming up. But this has been Keep Calm and Cauliflower Cheese. And I want to end today's edition with a poem. This is a beautiful piece of poetic work and it brought a tear to my eye. Philip came to me today and said it was time to go. I looked at him and smiled and whispered, I know. I then turned and looked behind me and seen I was asleep. All my family were around me. I could hear them weep. I gently touched each shoulder with Philip by my side. I turned away and walked with my angel guide. Philip held my hand as he led the way to a world where the kings and queens are monarchs every day. I was given a crown to wear or a halo known by some. The difference is up there, they're worn by everyone. I felt a sense of peace. My reign had seen its end. Seventy years I'd served my country as their people's friend. Thank you for the years, for all your time and love. And now I'm one of two again in our palace up above. Rest in peace, our queen.